to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the big events and conversations happening in the Middle East and the broader region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and I'm taking over from Al Monitor President Andrew Parasoliti this week to talk to Sherry Talabani, the co-founder of SEED, an NGO that's based in Iraqi Kurdistan. SEED promotes women's rights in a deeply patriarchal part of the world. It runs programs to combat human trafficking, online sexual exploitation, and also helps to rehabilitate women and children who are enslaved, abused, and deployed as child soldiers by the Islamic State. I've known Sherry for many years and attended her fundraising events in Washington. And I have to say, I find her to be quite remarkable. Welcome to our show, Sherry. It's great to have you here. It's great to talk to you, Amber, and thank you. Sherry, you and the team at SEED are doing critical work helping the Yazidi victims of ISIS heal their wounds. You work with women who were enslaved, raped, abused. You're also helping some of the thousands of young Yazidi boys forced to fight and engage in atrocities like public beheadings. I just read your disturbing report on child soldiers and was struck by a quote from one of the boys who says, I wonder who I am and what is the right or wrong way to live or be. Can you please tell us more about your work with these kids? Yeah, so we've been working with the Yazidi community for five years now, since early in the crisis, um, working to support the recovery, um, to empower uh, survivors of sexual and other kinds of violence. Um, they're all displaced in Kurdistan still. We have 750,000 who remain displaced. And I'd say when we think about the children and their needs, um, they're extremely complex needs. Children are extremely vulnerable, especially vulnerable. They've been impacted at such a formative um, stage of their development. They've had a completely disrupted childhood exposed to horrific levels of violence and loss. And so now they suffer from complex mental health issues, identity issues, which you touched upon. And these children really require specialized rehabilitation and support. For the most part, Yazidi boys that were were captured, um, they were very young captured with their mothers, um, uh, maybe ages nine and up, they were separated from their mothers and were forced to be child soldiers. So, you know, it's critically important for, for Iraq and, and Kurdistan's future, for our safety, for our security, that we attend to the needs of these young children. Are you working with uh, any international agencies or with uh, the Iraqi government? Is there any kind of uh, program in place to, to help these kids uh, recover, reintegrate into society? Yeah, so actually you touch on the key issue, which is there is a huge gap. We don't have a strategic framework or a policy framework to disarm, demobilize, and reintegrate children that were associated with armed groups. And so what we've seen is, for the most part, Yazidi boys have been released to their families um, and reintegrated in their communities without the typical DDR, demobilization program that helps to rehabilitate them, helps to address their mental health needs, helps to address 
um, their physical needs. They have huge, huge medical needs because they were exposed to such physical violence um, and they've been coerced to participate in armed hostilities. And it really makes, um, really makes it difficult to, to reintegrate them. So we've been serving these um, boys for at least three or four years now. And I think we've served about 30 boys and now we have programming funded by the US government um, to deepen our work with these children. And we're trying a whole range of comprehensive, maybe you can call it wraparound services, case management, mental health, legal services, cash assistance to help the families. And we're working with the individual children and we try to integrate them with children of their own age so that they um, don't face a lot of stigma. Uh, these kids do face a lot of stigma. So we try to reintegrate them with, with other children. And we also work with their parents and caretakers because many of these boys um, can, can express you know, aggressive behavior um, and unhelpful behavior. And the, and the parents really struggle with how to reconnect with them. The boys are often experiencing um, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and they're emotionally cut off with their own family. Um, and they really feel torn and feel connected to um, their old life as soldiers. Isn't the Iraqi government doing stuff with the UN on this as well? You know, the government of Iraq has been working with, with the UN for the last year or two um, to create an action plan to address these um, children that are all across Iraq, right? They're not just Yazidis no, and Kurdistan, right. Right? But, but they're um, uh, children from every group. And, um, and they're not just here, they're in Mosul and Baghdad and, and all across Nineveh um, to reintegrate these children. So I hope that the action plan that they've been working on will be approved. Um, it's not as comprehensive as what we've seen in other countries, but, um, but it's a start and it provides an overarching framework. The fact that the Yazidis are such a closed society must make your work that much harder and life for survivors that much harder. All of these boys will have been converted to Islam and obviously brainwashed. How does one shake that off? Yeah, so, so as I said, the kids are generally sent back to their families. So they're in camps or, or some of them live out of the camps. About, um, about 350,000 Yazidis live in camps. And so the remainder are integrated into communities. They're extremely poor. They live in, in dire uh, poverty. Um, so access really isn't a problem. Um, and so, you know, we see a mix. We see some that um, uh, maybe they have uh, more a closer identity with Islam. They have been trained and brainwashed. Um, they have been trained and brainwashed in violence, in their views about women, um, their views about their own community. So they've come to, some of them reject their own community um, and some just reject their families. They feel no emotional connection. And it's like kind of what we would think about gang violence. They felt empowered when they were soldiers and they were, they were groomed for this violence. So, so many of them really struggle with their own identity with the emotional connection. And um, some really have sympathy towards ISIS and they wanna get back to ISIS. And so we don't tackle that issue head on because we feel that would be kind of counterproductive. What we try to do is address their mental health needs because many of them have been exposed to extreme violence. 
Um, and so treating, you know, trauma. And then in terms of their social needs and their social connections, we really work to try to build that emotional connection with their family. And we're going to, in this new program, tackle this um, sort of belief, this, this hard black and white thinking that, uh, that really allows um, kids and adults to, to connect with radicalism. And so we're trying this new and innovative approach um, which really gets them, really tries to tackle how they think and to get them to think. Because you know, children in Iraq and Kurdistan aren't really taught to think. They're taught to respect their elders and follow um, what, what they're told to do. And so that really creates really great child soldiers, right? So what we wanna, we wanna encourage is critical thinking and, um, and strengthen their own empowerment. And we think through this, we can tackle the, the radicalism that they've been exposed to. So just to bring it home to our audience a bit, could you sort of describe a particular case that really struck you, a boy who really sort of, you know, embodied all this horror in his being? Yeah, so we've had a few like really, you know, I don't, I don't meet the cases myself, but we've had a few cases which really stand out and required, you know, a whole organization to, to think about how to support this, these children. So we had two boys, they were quite young, I think uh, seven and nine when we started working with them and they were separated from their mother and they were separated from each other. And one um, came back speaking Turkish. So the, the native uh, mother tongue for Yazidis is Kurdish. Uh, Kermanji Kurdish mostly, and um, and he spoke only Turkish and not Kurdish, um, and not Arabic. And the other child spoke only Arabic and not Kurdish or Turkish. And their mother was deaf. So, oh God. so they had some sort of basic signing that they had had done within the family. But one of the tasks was to find a common, you know, language that they could communicate. So. Uh, so they can reintegrate with the rest of their family. Both boys were um, retaught Kurdish and they recovered after about six or eight weeks, they were pretty functional again. Um, they had severe medical needs, both of them. We've had so many severe medical needs by these kids. And of course they come back malnourished and the mother um, was deaf and she was uh, also a survivor of ISIS. She was taken into captivity. So the whole family had to come back together and, and have a, uh, a lot of support to encourage their healing and to be able to reconnect emotionally. Now, we have found that the younger they are, the easier they are to reach. You know, they, they yearn for that love and connection with family, but it also, you know, we have to remember that some, some of these boys weren't really emotionally connected with family prior to being taken. And, and older children um, really have a harder time. We found that they, we have a harder time reconnecting. So we had a teenage boy who was um, intent on um, destroying his, his family's home and sent his, set his tent on fire many times. Um, and you know really just wanted to escape and go back. And, and we were able to, over a long period of time, we have to deliver services over six to nine months. And this is, this is really a short period of time for the needs that exist, but you know we have many, many children to serve. So you know we were able to reconnect this this um, teenager 
but it, it takes a long time. Oh, I'm sure. And, and you mentioned that, that the mother who was deaf, who, who uh, was also uh, captured by ISIS, enslaved by ISIS, and you have been working with such women. Can you tell us a little bit about those women? And also, particularly, there's also this added layer of, of tragedy where some of them have had children with these uh, Islamist fighters, and um, the children are not accepted by the community and many have been forced to leave the kid behind some have chosen to stay behind to keep the kid can you tell us a little bit about that too sherry yeah so you know we all know what happened to these women they were trafficked they were abused they were enslaved um, they were sold and they lived in constant terror and fear uh, some of them for many, many years, which really leads to a complex trauma, which is really hard to address. And of course, they come home to stigma. Um, they come home to judgment, harassment sometimes. And I, I think within the family, um, they've, they've, they've um, really been accepted, um, but there's still skepticism. Right, and so they face really in, um, complex, multi-layer challenges, uh, mental health issues, physical. They had terrible medical and reproductive health issues, um, and they have a lack of access to safe, you know, housing and privacy. They're they're intense, and um, you know they're on the they're really on the edge um, economically, um, uh, poverty, stigma, and as you said, many of them. Um, faced unwanted pregnancies and were denied the right to parent their own children. So um, of course they need mental health services and they need case management, which where we look at their housing, we look at their safety and do safety planning. We look at their legal and protection needs um, and we look at their medical needs and we try to access all of these services and provide them care. And, you know, we, um, we provide integrated and holistic care and usually um, it lasts for about six to seven months. And so, um, you know, we try to protect their rights and, um, and follow their wishes. All of our services are survivor centered. That means that, that we're, we're protecting their rights and following their wishes. And so many of these women that have been deprived their children you know, it's, it's, it's a re really complex and critical and difficult issue for the community. Um, and I'm sure you, you know that they face rejection should they decide that they want to parent their own children. There's this new Yazidi survivors law, right, that's just been passed. Can you tell us about that and what effect it's likely to have? Yeah, so this is such a critical step forward in recognizing supporters of female survivors of of ISIS, of conflict-related sexual violence, but the key uh, will be to, to see effective implementation and equitable implementation of the law. So we and other Yazidi, um, Yazidi activists, NGOs, UN, other governments have all been working with the Yazidi community to address the urgent needs, the recovery and reintegration of survivors. Um, but it really, there are so many gaps and there really needs to be a formal process to try to uh, protect their rights and to help their recovery and, and to address their needs. So the law is, is a really important step forward. And I should say it, it, it's meant to benefit not just Yazidi survivors, but Christian, Turkmen, 
Shabak women um, uh, that were also uh, taken into captivity and affected by ISIS. It recognizes that this was an act of genocide by ISIS. Um, and it commits the government of Iraq to ensuring justice for survivors and to provide them with the financial and, and healthcare and education um, and other services and needs that they have, as well as um, financial uh, reparations, which is so critical. So it also addresses that the government of Iraq should be, has an obligation to search for those that are missing um, or remaining in captivity, because we still have about 2,800 uh, people that we don't know um, where these women and children are. So I think it's a really important um, critical step forward. And so we hope to see the law implemented in a fair way, in an equitable way, um, in a survivor-centered way. That means that um, the women's privacy and confidentiality and dignity is protected and that their rights are protected. So I think it's a really important step forward. Online sexual exploitation is a pretty big issue in Iraqi Kurdistan, as it is the world over. Young women and men get duped into sharing intimate photos, which are then used to blackmail them. The problem is getting worse as people spend more time online because of the confinement imposed by COVID. Can you tell us about your program to help such people avoid entrapment? Sure. Well, you know, this is a growing problem everywhere in the world, and especially um, vulnerable um, are women and girls in conservative societies like Kurdistan um, and Iraq. And so we're seeing um, image-based, um, social media-based exploitation where um, a girl could um, have been in an intimate relationship, um, and there were photos taken, or even you know her photo could be manipulated to show her in a vulnerable um, in a vulnerable way, um, in a sexual way, or even with short sleeves could could make some women and girls vulnerable. And so we are finding that they're being exploited for money, um, uh, for sex, um, and so it's it's really a high risk for young young people, young women mostly. Um, also, the LGBTI community is extremely vulnerable to this because um, it's uh, considered shameful um, to be LGBTI in, in Iraq. And so we're seeing people being exploited uh, because of these vulnerabilities. And so we've been working to educate young people about safe uh, behaviors, smart choices, and to empower them to make smart choices about their relationships and their bodies. Um, and to stay safe online. And so it's really, really important. And soon we'll be launching a new program called Seed Girls, which is really targeted to, to young, young girls to help them make smart choices about their lives um, and to empower them and to, to help them be you know, safe in their lives and have healthy lives. And I bet that many would like to be like you. And uh, so <laughs> that's kind of threatening to the, to the men in the society that you operate in. Can you tell us a little bit about how life is for an American woman, um, you know, who's married to a very, you know, prominent uh, political figure who comes from this very famous family? Um, how does that work? How do you, how have you succeeded, first of all, to, you know, navigate this patriarchal society? Because 
let's face it, that's what it is. And second, how have you managed to forge an identity of your own separate from that of your husband? Wow, these are great questions. So, you know, fortunately, um, you know, I was, I was pretty established in my career and in my marriage before I moved to Kurdistan. Um, and, and I have a long history in Kurdistan and, and I started working here um, in 1998 and 99, I was with the U.S. government, and and so I, I know a lot of people. I have relationships with a lot of people, and and so it was easy for me to to establish myself here. I was I was respected, and and maybe there's a bit of a double standard because I'm a Western woman. Um, there's no there's there are no you know limitations, and I think I married somebody who was raised by by strong, um, independent women. Um, the men in his life were comfortable with strong and independent women. He was raised by his grandmother, who was a poet. She was a writer. And her husband was a political leader and an intellectual. And my mother was the wife of, of Mom Jalal, Jalal Talabani, the former president of Iraq. And, and he was, um, you know, he looked at her uh, as his equal you know, and equality was part of their lives. And she was, you know, she was a very independent woman. So my husband is, is completely comfortable with me, my strong views, my complete independence, and he <clears throat> supports my career and work. Um, so, you know, like my, you know, I, I really didn't face the limitations here, but it is, it is a challenge to, to focus on um, women's rights and women's empowerment, um, and um, and and uh, I I'm afforded a lot of independence and respect here. But my goal is to help other women women here um, have their rights protected and and be able to make the choices about their own lives. You know, that's really at the heart of it is equality. Um, and being able to make decisions about how you want to live your life, whether you want to marry, whether you want to have children. And, you know, I'm in a marriage where we make our decisions about our marriage and about our family and our parenting together. And um, I wouldn't have it any other way, but I'd like to see other women live that way too. You mentioned your mother-in-law, Hero Talabani, uh, who's like one of the first women fighters. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your relationship with her and how she's influenced you and inspired you to do what you do in Iraqi Kurdistan? Yeah, so my mother, um, her name is Hero Ibrahim Ahmed. She never really, you know, here they don't take their husband's um, name. She was, she was quite a strong and independent woman. I have huge respect for her as a person and and for her accomplishments. She, she, as you alluded to, she lived in the mountains with my father-in-law. She was actually like a photojournalist. She photographed and filmed all of those, those years. And she gave up, you know, her safety to fight in the mountains um, or to be with, with my father-in-law and to, to, you know, to give up her safe life to do that. And she, you know, she was, quite an accomplished woman. She started uh, Kurdistan Save the Children, which was 
um, one of the first organizations working to improve children's welfare. She started a TV conglomerate, Gertzat. And I would say she helped women, but I wouldn't say she was ever a women's activist because I think that she never really experienced um, limitations of being a woman. And she, um, she didn't see the limitations of, of, of others. And so she was, she, was a, she was a woman that was, or as a child, respected and empowered by her parents. And then as a married woman, she was respected and empowered by her husband. So she really just never knew these limitations, but she did have a hard life. Um, you know, one time I, she used to match her purse with her shoes and she was, you know, a very meticulous dresser and a beautiful, you know, she cared about her appearance. And one time I asked her why she always dressed, you know, with the matching purse and shoes. And she told me that in her life, she lost everything she owned seven times. She was forced to flee her home and her, um, everything she had as a child and as an adult, young adult, seven times in her life. So, you know, this, the, the, this, she lived in a cave when she was with my father-in-law in the mountains, she lived in a cave with mostly men. And so, you know, she, she came as an adult when she had safety um, and became, you know, the first lady of Iraq. She, you know, came to value that safety and that freedom that she, she had. She, she was quite a remarkable, she is a quite remarkable woman. Um, and I, I would also say that she lived in a different era of Iraq and Kurdistan where I think women really did have fewer limitations um, and things have gotten worse for women. So I, I hope that my children, uh, our children can live with fewer limitations going forward. Um, and we're raising our daughter to be a very strong young lady. Um, and I hope that she you know, embraces the freedom and ind independence of her grandmother um, and my mother was also a strong and independent woman, very much so. So we have, we have a lot of work to do to get back to that era where, you know, women are, are, are fierce and strong, like my mother-in-law. Well, I think you're doing her proud and all of us women proud. Thank you very much, Sherry, for coming onto the show. Thank you and wish you the best of luck with all your wonderful work. Thank you so much, Amber. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnists reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor.
So this brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you for joining us and hope to be here soon again with yet another amazing woman doing amazing work in and on the Middle East. And believe me, there are lots of them. Thank you and goodbye.